in this report answering the top six questions that you ask me about nuts, bolts, threaded fasteners and tool time generally. Logan from AutoExpert.com.au and I get new cars cheap. Australia only. Website. Card. I'm not talking about cars today so much. It's a bit more of a going hands-on thing. So if you like to lube up and get dirty, you've come to exactly the right place. This report is sponsored by NordVPN. I'm no IT expert, but I've seen enough, especially lately, about data breaches, scams and hacks to know that being online is inherently risky and potentially very costly. You don't have to be tech savvy to use NordVPN. It's a simple one-stop cyber security solution. One click and you are protected from hackers, malware and pop-ups across as many as six devices. Go to nordvpn.com slash AEJC now and you'll get three to 12 months extra time on any two year subscription as part of Nord's 11th birthday celebration. Plus one more bonus month just for using the nordvpn.com slash AEJC link in the description. NordVPN is the world's fastest VPN and it only costs about as much as a cup of coffee every month to keep your data, your identity and your devices secure. NordVPN can also save you money because you can assign your virtual location to another country where, for example, flights and accommodation might be cheaper than they are back home. Same goes for streaming services. You can also access live sporting events and other content that may not be available where you actually live. That's a pretty small price to pay for cyber security, not to mention the potential savings also on the table. Go to nordvpn.com AEJC now to get a huge discount off your plan plus a free 11th birthday gift and all that additional free subscription time. Totally risk free with Nord's 30 day money back guarantee. That's nordvpn.com AEJC, link in the description and thanks to Nord for sponsoring this episode. This video is obviously a follow-up on a video I did a matter of days ago, link up there, concerning high tensile fasteners and the issues that ordinary punters who've never worked in industry typically face when they interact with things of this nature, because some of it's a bit counterintuitive or at least not straightforward. So this in our context concerns, you know, going snout first into the engine bay and coming up with a problem or being underneath a car that's up on a hoist or jack stands or something and needing to get some critical component reassembled just right. It's also relevant if you just pull the wheels off your car to rotate the tyres and you want to get those wheel nuts back on properly. So I filleted the questions that flooded in and just taken out the top six export grade ones and let us kick off with that right now. And the first one is from a dude named John Wade who goes, I'm not sure you've got enough material to go at trying to helicoil a nut. Now, if that's all just French or Spanish or gibberish to you, I should explain. In a lot of manufactured components, including cars, there's lots of box section frames that get folded up and welded in the manufacturing process. And the inside of them, after they're assembled, is inaccessible and often components need to 
bolt up to them, right? So what they do in manufacturing is they weld a nut on what will be the inside and then they do those other processes, the folding and the welding, and you end up with a nut on the inside in the Goldilocks location to bolt whatever widget needs to be bolted up in that spot. And that's all great, except if that nut that's called a captive nut, if it gets damaged, if it corrodes or it gets cross-threaded or stripped or any combination of those things, then like Houston, got a bit of a problem, right? And what you do in that situation, or at least one of the alternatives, is you whip out something like that, which is known in the vernacular as a helicoil kit, but helicoil is a brand like Coca-Cola or something. So this is a power coil kit. It's just a thread insert repair kit, okay? And basically, you get all of the tools in the one box that you need to do the job. There's a special drill that is exactly the right size for this special tap which is exactly the right size for this special stainless steel insert that is really just a really clever coil of wire that's got two threads, one on the outside and one on the inside. The one on the inside is M12 by 1.75, which is basically that. It's just the standard M12 coarse thread. Okay, so you can get these at any engineering supply. This is a uh, socket head cap screw, obviously, but you can get them in hex head and all kinds of other heads as well. And basically, this insert is just that thread, and you need to get it into the damaged nut. And what holds it in place is the thread on the outside, which is two millimeters bigger in the same pitch. So this tap is M14 by 1.75. And you put the insert in using this tool with a slot in it that goes in like that, and you just drive it down so that it screws into place. And then you've got this little tab, I don't know if you can see that at the end there, but you've got this little tab right at the end that could be problematic, which is why in the kit, they also give you this clever little punch here that's designed to smash that off right at the end of the process once you've got the coil in place. And then you can, you know, if it's a through hole, the broken bit just falls off. It's got a specially ground uh, part on the thread there that ensures that it breaks in the right spot. So it's quite cleverly worked out and they work really well. As to have you got enough meat on a nut, like a captive nut, to drill it out and recoil it, I'd suggest, yeah, you have. I've done that. I bought a mulcher that was proudly Australian-made. And it's actually not a bad mulcher. It's really good, except for the fasteners that they used in some critical locations, which were absolutely the best Chineseium that you could buy for the price. So the clearances were shit and the material was shit. And in critical applications, holding the bearing blocks in place for the shaft on which all of the rotating flails uh, moved around, uh, it was just a disaster and you could never get the bearing blocks tight and they kept getting loose and they kept moving in service and every attempt to tighten them was just closer and closer and closer to stripping the threads which inevitably happened and there were about eight or ten threads that had the danger of going like that so I just said ah oh, bugger it and helicoiled a lot and because it's a heavy mulcher and I'd wasn't easy to pull apart. I couldn't really get it into a drill press and the material wasn't thick enough to get a mag drill on it. I just drilled it with a battery drill and tapped it on site and 
that was 10 years ago, still going just fine, and nothing has come loose since. And what I did was, just to confirm that you can still do this, and it makes absolute sense, I mic'd up a nut. Well, actually, I calipered up a nut. And this is our first little side discussion, right? If you're going to buy a set of calipers like this, I strongly advise not going for the digital kind because they're such a pain in the ass. The batteries always go flat. The electronics are always problematic, like they're always dying. And it's so easy to learn to read these. It really is. All you need is sufficient eyesight to resolve the scales. And a politician could do it with suitable instruction, dude. And you can measure something reliably down to about 20 microns, which is 1 50th of a millimetre right? And most of the parts that somebody like you or which I would measure down here in the engineering ghetto, most of those parts are not consistent within, you know, 20 microns. They're just not. It's ridiculous. Like a 50th of a millimetre is less than a thousandth of an inch because there's 39 thousandths of an inch in a millimetre. So we're talking about uh, resolving to less than a thousandth of an inch with a manual device like this that is just really easy to use and really quite accurate, right? So if you only want to measure something to within about a tenth of a millimetre, a child could do this, right? The, the digital ones are easy to read. They give you lots of decimal places and you think, awesome, but the first time you pick one up and the display is dead and you whip down and grab a new battery and stick it in and the display is still dead because the electronics have corroded, uh, you'll realise what a pain in the ass the digital ones are. Anyway, I measured the nut, I measured the tap, I did all of this stuff and basically, I'll just refer to my little cheat notes over here, the tap in the kit, right, it's 14.1 millimetres, which is pretty good tapping size for you know, 14 by 1.75, even though that's not a standard uh, thread size, as I understand it. That's 14.1. The across the flat distance is notionally 19 for an M12 nut, but when I measure it, they always come in under. This one in particular, across all three, is about 18.75 using manual miracle here. <sighs> the Spanish guy. And basically what that means is, it's 18.75 across the flats, and I measured across the corners as well, it's 21.46 across the corners, right? And that's going to give you, once you drill a hole in it, it's going to give you 2.3 of clearance on each side across the flats, and 3.7 at the corners, which in my view is more than enough, because we're not just removing that material, we're removing it and replacing it with... Uh, a sort of high-performance stainless steel spring that is going to go straight back in place. It's not like we're fundamentally weakening the nut in any serious way. And, you know, based on having done it in the field and based on these measurements, there's more than enough to do it. But if it is a critical thing that you are bolting up, then it might be a good idea to do a test, which would be just get yourself a bit of scrap and weld a nut the same size as the captive nut into it and put a helicoil in it, just drill it out, put a helicoil in it, and then torque it up. In this case, the torque setting for class 10.9 high tensile fastener is 107 newton metres, I think. So just crank it up to 107 newton metres, and if it doesn't 
form in any appreciable way and it does the to- it, it goes up to the torque spec just fine then Houston we've got a solution and Apollo 13 can land safely back on earth with minimal fuss so that's always nice when that sort of thing happens so I would suggest that you can absolutely helicoil a nut but in a critical application it might be a really good idea to test first question number two now from a dude named Bobby Featherston who is a very interesting chap I found out towards the end of his question Why do plate washers fit the bolts so loosely? Is this intentional? Well, yeah, it's obviously intentional because somebody made the washer and the holes and the outside diameter and the thickness and the coating and all of that stuff was the result of decisions that got made. So yes, it is intentional. Bobby goes on and says, I get real OCD about this sometimes and will often use the next size smaller, which requires filing or drilling for a good fit. The more visible the application, the more likely I am to do this as it makes my fabrications look wonky with sloppy washer fit. Is this a bad idea? Well, I'd suggest that that really depends on the detailed design, Bobby. We've got another bit from Bobby to come. I'm going to spare you that until we answer his technical questions. The, the thing about washers is there's cheap ones and good ones. Like, this is a pretty good M12 washer. It's a so-called mudguard washer, meaning it's bigger than usual. And the reason you would make it bigger than usual is when you're bolting something to some thin piece of sheet steel and the bigger surface area stops the load from being transmitted to just a small piece of that thin material. It spreads the load. In other words, it's like putting a big piece of checker plate, a a foot by a foot or something, under a jack in the field when you're four-wheel driving so that you don't just jack the jack down into the mud when, in fact, you're trying to lift the uh, four-wheel drive into the air. And this is a uh, a slightly cupped washer. It's a bit uh, thicker. This one is two-point. I did measure it, but anyway, it's two-point. I'm going to say two millimetres, and this one is three. So they're fairly thick, beefy washers that are really good for precision assemblies. And the clearance is about, in total, I'd say a millimetre and a half, and that's not too bad, you know. If you centralise it roughly, it's going to be three quarters of a millimetre clearance on each side, and they don't need to be super tight, and they're going to look reasonably concentric. But if you want to make your own washers, Bobby, I've got a couple of suggestions for you there. You can use a hole saw. So this is a tungsten carbide tipped hole saw that you can put in a drill press. And this particular one is 35OD, which is just about Goldilocks for that standard size M12 washer. And then once you've done that, you can just drill out the central hole to whatever size you want for whatever clearance. And I'd suggest with... Uh, This set screw is M12 by 1.75 and the outside diameter of this is about 11.8 when I mic'd it up earlier. So you could drill a 12.5 mil hole and the clearance is about a quarter of a millimetre all around. It's going to be slightly more of a pain in the ass to get it on, but hey, that'll be fine. You could also use something of this nature, which is a brilliant piece of precision engineering. It's called either an annular cutter or a rotary brooch. They're tomato, tomato, okay? Same thing, different name. Depends who you ask. It's 
essentially just, uh, I think it's probably M2 high-speed steel. Anyway, it's a pretty good grade of high-speed steel, and it's a precision hole saw. It needs to be used with lubrication. It's got a pin that goes down the centre that I haven't got on the bench at the moment, but it just slides in here. And if you use the right setup, the pin also does the uh, coolant flow because you need to use these with uh, a lubricating cooling oil basically you buy some water soluble coolant and it goes in a reservoir up here and when the pin engages with the work it lifts up the cap here and starts the flow of coolant thus preserving the life of the tool they're pretty expensive for what they do so you'd really want to be getting some use out of it they come in all different sizes and they've got this shank here called a weldon shank Basically, you need a Weldon type chuck on the drill. You can get them for big beefy drill presses or you could get them also for mag drills. Mag drills often come with a Weldon type shank. You use two set screws to locate the cutter in place. They have to be done up pretty tight. You don't want them coming loose while the cutter is operational and do not use them dry. But that'll get you a really nice precision uh, insert and you can use whatever material obviously you need to to do that job so then you just drill out the central hole once again for whatever clearance you could use a bimetal high-speed steel sort of um, hole saw as well just the sort of thing that you buy from Sutton tools at uh, at Bunnings that'll drill mild steel pretty easily but the thing with all of these hole saws in particular is that they have a problem clearing the chips once you get beyond a certain depth. So if you've got compressed air, I'd suggest backing off and blowing the chips out manually because there's really nowhere for them to go. Like with a linear saw, you cut through like this and the chips get ejected as the teeth leave the work. The problem with these kinds of saws is that the teeth never leave the work and therefore if you're drilling down deeper than a couple of millimetres, the chips will just bind up and you'll get the teeth running over the chips and the quality of the cut will go down. Also, I'd be using a slow speed and I'd really uh, use a lot of cutting oil as well just to make things easier and not too heavy on the feed because all of these things will lead to chatter. I'd be bolting a vise to the drill press to use something like this and uh, just maximising the stiffness of the setup to reduce the chatter. But you can successfully produce custom washes uh, any way you want. And if that is what makes you feel good, then hey, there's no law against that. Now, Bobby goes on and he says, entertainingly enough, right at the end, when he'd, he'd set me up with this reasonably good, albeit OCD question, and then he goes... Are poster-sized prints of you wearing fishnets available? It's been a while since I got the fishnets out. I don't actually have any for sale at the moment, but there is a limited edition run of Cletus Van Dam in his fishnets, if that's of interest. I can make them available, get your people to talk to my people about that for, let's call it, $799 a throw. Returning to the non-fishnet domain with Chris Walker now, who says, can you go through how to store and look after a torque wrench and other safety critical measurement tools that live in the average fat cave? Yeah, that's a pretty good question. There are a lot of tools that are, I don't know if they're critical measurement tools, but there are a lot of tools that deserve not to float around in the back of your ute or sit in the bottom of a toolbox with a whole bunch of hammers and chisels on top of them, for example. So 
what I'd suggest is there's all sorts of tools like this. With things like calipers, uh, they're particularly vulnerable to being dropped like this because if that gets dropped like this, you will strip the, uh, the rack and pinion that's inside the mechanism here. And uh, it, it, particularly if it's a dial caliper, it'll have a rack and pinion in there to drive the dial. But in any case, dropping this kind of thing open. So the first thing I would do with most measurement tools is I'd close them after I'm finished with them. And I would store them, unlike power tools and things of that nature, I'd just store them in the blow molded case that they come in because that's a great way to protect them. They're stainless steel, so they shouldn't be that amenable to rust. And that's basically all you've got to do with things of this nature. You can get your precision squares in two flavors. Rust is probably the biggest killer of tools in your average fat cave. Obviously, this one here is made of carbon steel on the bit that matters, and it's precision ground, so that it's nice and square, like squarer than your average Stanley square at Bunnings. But you can also get the aluminium equivalent that's powder-coated and not amenable at all to going rusty. So if I was going to do this again, I would only buy a square like this. It's also easier to to read with the white uh, etched lettering on the black uh, powder-coated background. So that's better all round in my view. But you know, this square is still quite useful and as long as you keep it uh, sufficiently protected against corrosion, you can see on the surface of, in particular, the 45 degree face, that it has had a bit of an attack of the corrosions previously. I hope you can see that. And all you do in that situation is you'd stone them flat again. That's how I'd do it. You can buy precision stones for stoning all kinds of precision ground things. Like if you get a bit of rust on your 123 blocks or your 246 blocks, you can stone that out without damaging the surface. And likewise, if you, if you dent something that matters, like if you dent the face of this, if you drop a center punch onto this face, what's going to happen is... At a microscopic sort of level, it'll be a bit like a crater on the moon. It'll have a divot in it, but around the divot will be a raised bit. And that'll the raised bit is what's going to affect the accuracy of subsequent measurements. So if you get a precision stone and just lightly stone the raised bit away, that's the way to deal with defects of that nature. And then with all of these kinds of tools, I just wax them, basically, from time to time. And I just use... Uh, a wax like that that's a non-silicon sort of thing that's used to, um, you know, preserve the... Uh, it's used to just lock out oxygen and water condensation, whatever. They're the two killers, the promoters of rust. You know, if you get a little bit of condensation and then you've got contact with the air, carbon steel is going to rust. So a little bit of wax like that on a rag, just rub it over. It's going to be reasonably durable. Same sort of thing here with the, the V in the... Uh, precision level which is just like the level that you get the Stanley level that you get from Bunnings right except a hundred times more accurate and useful for doing things like leveling the ways on a lathe and if you want to go quietly insane a precision level is an excellent tool for that particular job because you can just chase your tail for hours endlessly and in many cases just end up back where you started and who doesn't want that so with all of these kinds of devices that's where i'd go with the storage and management of them obviously with things like micrometers i would never uh i would never get a micrometer and 
whip it right up closed. I wouldn't leave it closed for two reasons, because that'll promote rust where the two anvils meet, and I'd never crank on it. It's got a ratchet here. I hope you can hear that. That just gives you the Goldilocks tension when you're measuring something. And I'd always back it off because I wouldn't want thermal expansion one way or the other to, if you've got it closed up and obviously it gets colder, everything's going to shrink and you might end up putting too much stress on the thing, which leads to inaccuracy over time. And I don't want the faces to corrode either. Incidentally, when I bought this particular micrometer many years ago, it was fully seized up and I had to pull it apart and fix it. But they're not really that complex. It's a thread with a nut on it, and it's a pretty accurate thread with a nut, but that's really all it is. And you can adjust them, and you can find something precision to measure and calibrate them. That's that's really no big deal. So I just wouldn't leave it in the bottom of a toolbox with big heavy chisels and hammers on top of it. And the same goes for one's torque wrench. This is a Warren and Brown torque wrench. Obviously, I talked about it the last time. It's very nice to use because, you know, it just it feels so slick and it's got a whole bunch of features that are really nice to use. Like it locks in place. You're never going to crank on it like this and change the setting unwittingly. And there's a lot of folklore about these tools. Some people treat precision tools like it's a religion. And... I'm not seeing it. Some people will say you've got to back the torque wrench right off every time. But a torque wrench has got a spring inside it. And it's got a, a thread. There's nothing that is going to be influenced by being set at some, you know, medium setting. If you leave that in your toolbox set at half time for the next six months, it's not going to change the accuracy of a torque wrench, or at least I can't see how it would do that. You know, so apart from stopping it rusting, I always keep my torque wrench in the blow molded case it came in, but they are pretty robust tools. Like, there's not a great deal on the outside that can be damaged which would affect the torque mechanism. I'm not sure I'd use it like a breaker bar because a breaker bar is easy to buy and designed for that purpose. And if you've got something really tight, you can hit it with a hammer. I wouldn't be hitting this with a hammer, but with all the tools, I just I fail to see why treating them like a religion matters. I think what you've got to do is draw a balance between treating them like a religion and abuse and somewhere in the middle of those two uh, extremes of application out there in the world is sort of the Goldilocks zone where you know, you're not wrapping them in cotton wool and treating them like they're some sort of sacred icon that deserves to be uh, deified. Right, And they're just going to be serviceable for years. And realistically, that's what you want because some of this stuff is not particularly cheap. And uh, moreover, when you need it, you really need it. And you want to be able to pick it up and it's just going to be good to go. And I'll give you an example of good to go, right? If you buy something quality, this was a gift uh, from the toolmaker that I used to work for when he retired and he didn't need it anymore. This is an inspection micrometer. It's a Zeiss one-inch inspection mic, which will measure things down to one-tenth of a thousandth of an inch, which is pretty bleu when you think about it, because that's the sort of precision that you, A, seldom need, and B, certainly cannot see. And seldom matters. Tenths of thousandths of inches don't generally matter 
when you're making something, even when you're making something reasonably precise, like a shaft that has to fit in a precision hole so that you can shrink it into place or press it into place, something like that. So this has to be, I, I was given this 30 years ago, 30-something 30 years ago, and it must be 30 years old, right? So this is 60 years old, German-made Zeiss, inspection mic it's got a couple of corrosion type blemishes on the knurling here where it's been sitting inside its ancient wooden box but aside from that it's virtually brand new and i know that the chap who gave it to me charlie Raiden, i know he used it frequently enough so you know if you buy reasonably good tools and you just store them without abusing them and you don't have to treat them as if they're sacred icons and they'll work out just fine so anytime you've got you know, someone who does treat them like a religion, you can just quietly roll your eyes and, you know, just get on with the job. Juichi Wakisaka now has got a couple of good questions. She says, at work using auto data for workshop manuals. When I'm looking for what torque to tighten the wheels to, some cars state do not lubricate wheel studs. Why would this be the case? Okay, so in a workshop manual, what you've got to appreciate is that the authors of workshop manuals are... Uh, basically supplying this information to people of unknown hands-on capability. Let's say that mechanics might use that data, but also the most ham-fisted yob in existence might use that data. And therefore, they've got to dumb down the procedures so that they reduce the risk of assembly going bad, even when somebody has very poor to no skill and almost no mechanical sympathy. So if they do that, if they say, don't lubricate the wheel studs, that just standardizes their condition prior to tightening up the wheel nuts, right? And if you do that, then you've got to appreciate that when you tighten up a threaded assembly, some of the torque goes to overcome the friction, most of it actually, and the remainder stretches the bolt. And what you want to do is stretch the bolt by a precise-ish amount so that the fastener clamps the pieces together. That's how this works for a sort of precision assembly, right? So what you've got to do is standardise the friction to the extent that that's possible. And one way of doing that is to say don't lubricate the assembly, right? Don't lubricate the thread, don't lubricate the nut, don't lubricate the mating face. And therefore... Because bolts uh, such as wheel bolts, wheel nuts, don't come off the car very often, probably once or twice a year for the life of the vehicle, they're going to remain in an as-factory sort of condition generally for many years to come. Okay, And they'll be lightly lubricated ex-factory. And that means that the friction will be more or less standardised if you follow their procedure. And if you want to deviate from the workshop manual procedure, then you have to understand more about how this works so that you can make appropriate modifications to the process. If you are concerned about wheel studs becoming seized over time, then you can lubricate them. That's fine. You can use anti-seize compounds or whatever you want. But the standard advice from Ajax about its threaded fasteners is that you apply correction factors to the recommended torque based on the surface finish of the fastener and the lubrication. So if they're lightly oiled X-Factory, that's the so-called dry assembly torque. And if you heavily lubricate them by using 
anti-seize or oil or things of that nature, extra oil, then you knock the torque off by about 30% because there's less friction now and therefore less torque is required in total because you've got less friction to overcome, okay? And then you'll get the same stretch. The same is true if you replace a mill-finished fastener like this with a zinc-plated fastener, and you know, threaded fastener and a nut. You're going to have to apply a correction factor. Don't quote me on this, but I think it's about 10% for changing the zinc. So you just want to think about all of this stuff. And if you're not confident with making those kinds of corrections, just follow the procedure. Now, Wakisaka-san goes on and says also when you're trying to torque fasteners up on a car, but there's no room for a torque wrench and it's not reasonably practical to remove components or the whole engine to gain access, what do you do? Good question. What you do is you can see if a smaller torque wrench will fit, right? You could use maybe a quarter inch drive socket set with a quarter inch torque wrench and that might get you out of trouble. You could use a bunch more extensions if that gets you out of trouble or you could just do it by hand. If you've got mechanical sympathy, tighten it up by hand. It depends what you're bolting on. If it's an alternator bracket, you could do that by hand. If it's a conrod bolt, not so much. Okay, so that really is an engine out kind of job. But you've just got to match the application with the access and everything's a compromise, right? So if you can't reach the component, then you might have to do it by hand. And you might have to go, well, you know, 50 newton meters is 50 newtons at the end of a meter. So it's 500 newtons at the end of 100, which is 250 at the end of 200, and that's 25 kilos. So if I hoy down on that with 25 kilos, 200 out, if I've got a wrench that's, you know, roughly 200 long or something, then that's going to get me in the ballpark. And for a non-critical application, in the ballpark is probably good enough. Now, Wacky Sakasan goes on and says, I assume that adding extensions will alter the torque wrench's accuracy. No, it won't, because there'll be some rotational springiness, if you like, in the extensions, but there won't be too much of that. And in any case, uh, Newton's third law says that action and reaction are equal and opposite. And that basically means that the weight of the one, two, three block pressing down on the bench is equal and opposite to the reactive force pressing back by the bench. And the differential diagnosis of that, the confirmation, if you like, is that the block is not accelerating. If it's not subject to uh, Newton's second law, which says F equals MA, then we're in a balanced force environment. It's a balanced system. It's not subjected to acceleration. Okay. So this also happens with torque, you know, or let's think about it like this. If you've got a spring and I press down with a hundred kilos on the spring and the spring is weightless. Okay. The spring's going to compress, but with a hundred kilos on top of it, the bench has to press back with a hundred kilos if it's not accelerating right? So you can have a torsion spring, which essentially the long extension for a socket set would be, and it'll spring in torsion, meaning rotate in the same way that a coil spring would compress when you press it. But when everything stops moving, 
the compression or the springiness is really irrelevant because we're still talking about Newton's third law. So you could have a really long extension with a torque wrench or a really short extension with a torque wrench. But if you're moving that torque wrench really slowly and it clicks at 100 Newton meters, it's 100 Newton meters down at the business end as well as up where you're actually leaning on it. That's just how this works. Two to go now. Tobus71 now, who says, when you mention backing off the torque number by about 30% when using lube, it kind of does my head in. I am assuming that because of the lubrication, the nut has less friction when tightening. Okay, so the whole thing, you know, you think about it, you've got some assembly, it doesn't matter what it is, we could be, I don't know, we could be bolting this together for some ridiculous reason when you get the whole thing together and you're cranking it down part of the torque i can feel the nut rubbing against the washer and it's getting harder and harder to tighten down right so obviously some of the torque that i'm applying to the nut is being used to overcome the friction against the washer okay if I lubricate the whole, there's also friction obviously in the threaded components, not that much when you look at it, but when you start to stretch the bolt, the friction between the internal and external threads starts to ramp up as well. So when you look at it, there's all of that friction that must be overcome and then you need to stretch the bolt as well. If you reduce the friction, the purpose of lubrication is to reduce the friction. It's just a matter of less torque equals the same stretch of the bolt in a reduced friction environment. It's really that simple. You just really have to have faith that a whole bunch of pointy-headed dudes working for Ajax manufacturing these precision bolts that do all kinds of things, including keep really heavy shit above people's heads from collapsing onto their heads, they've come up with processes that are based on objective testing and They've been proven time and time again to work. And if, if Ajax tells me that if you lubricate that bolt, just back off the torque 30%, she'll be right. I go, okay, you understand this better than me. And I'd suggest that's the way that we've all got to roll because we can't all know everything about everything. Rodney Williams now, who says, in regard to your nut fucker, as a first-year aircraft maintenance engineer in 1973, I referred to one as a shifter and was told by my master that it was an engineer's adjustable wrench, but yes, they bugger things if not used correctly and carefully. Okay, here's a little bit of workshop colloquialism. If you're wondering what a nutfucker is, here's one I prepared earlier. The engineer's adjustable wrench, or nutfucker, as it is more correctly known, is guaranteed to do that because it's very hard to keep it adjusted correctly over and over and over again, and who has time, which is why, of course, they invented fixed wrenches, which do a much better job of not fucking any nuts, okay? So this leads me to the discussion about if you're kicking off on your wrenching career and you've probably got a set of spanners like this, and then you're going to come up against the problem of having a nut with this hex on it and a bolt with this hex on it, therefore you need two spanners. The options are you could buy a completely separate set of spanners at exactly double the cost, which is not that horrendous, but or you could have one of these one-size-fits-all jobbies and just use the 
adjustable wrench, nut fucker, to hold one end while you do the work with one of these, preferably that end, but maybe that end if access is limited and you can't get over the top of the shaft, okay? So that's doable, but I'd suggest there are much better options in the market than this baby. And I've got one up here somewhere. Bear with me. So the alternatives come from brands like Vera. Vera makes some very high quality tools, I don't mind them. Here's a set of alternatives to the Nutfucker from Vera. They're pretty clever. I don't mind them at all. I don't use them that much, mainly because you need, you just need so many of them to do the particular job in question, right? And the particular job in question is they can do that. They can do that pretty easily. They always adjust themselves up nice and snug and they're great for holding the other end of the work while you crank down on the head of the bolt with the other wrench, right? They're not bad, but to cover from whatever that is, it's lovely getting old, to cover uh, from 7 millimeters to 19 millimeters, you need four of them, okay? Which is a lot of extra hardware to carry around because you can get from 7 millimeters to more than 19 millimeters with a single nut fucker. So, you know, swings and roundabouts there, I suppose. Another great alternative to the Vera option of carrying this thing around, like I would not have this in my go bag because it's too heavy and I would not use it frequently enough. But I might put one of these in my go bag. This is uh, from Knipex, the German company that makes the best pliers in the world. This is a pliers wrench from Knipex and is this just not a thing of beauty and an absolute joy to behold? If you haven't felt the incredibly positive engagement of something like that, then, dude, you really haven't lived. This thing is ridiculously nice to use and just so practical. And one of these covers you from, you know, dead closed up to whatever that is, roughly, let's tell you precisely, it's like 38 millimetres across the flats. Inch and a half in the old money. So that's just beautiful and Compared with this, the roundover potential of this is nothing. And because of the cam type action and the mechanical advantage, when you've got this in place, all you need to do is lean on the top. Like you can physically just lean on it like this. You don't need to grip it, just lean on it, dude. And it will not come loose. That's all you need to tighten the whole thing up. And you can use your other hand for wrenching around. They really are just things of beauty and a joy to behold. So one pliers wrench, or if you want the box set, obviously, they come in other sizes as well. And if you've got three of those, you get a great deal of mechanical advantage for these. Like this would be absolutely beautiful if you're a beard stroker and you need the second spanner or something for any really big nuts, including the big nut on the bottom of the toe ball, or to grab, you know, the top of the uh, toe ball. You know where the toe ball's got the flats 
just where it meets down on the tongue of the hitch, right? So just to grab the top of the toe ball while you use your nut fucker to crank on the nut and make sure that your toe ball is not going to fall off in service. That would be brilliant for this. Two of these would be just awesome as well and so versatile. The other cool thing to see, I don't know if you can see that in there, but the jaws themselves are completely devoid of any sort of... Uh, features they're just flat right so what they do is they don't mark the nut in the way that a set of vice grips or any of those plumbing type pliers you know multi-grips and things of that nature invariably damage the surface of the nuts these don't do that they're absolutely brilliant and if you wanted if you wanted the most serious upgrade to a basic spanner kit that I could think of, it would be one or two of these. You don't really need the small ones so much. You can get away without the small ones. They're really good for just carrying in a bag if you need to do something in the field that you weren't expecting. But if you wanted to do proper work and you had these two in your bag in addition to just an ordinary set of wrenches, then you'd be equipped to deal with 99% of problems, especially if you've also got, like, a socket set and then while we're digressing about the wrenches I also wanted to mention uh, this to you these are brilliant I've been using these for a few months now they're from Warren and Brown which is the same Australian company that makes this torque wrench they're called a wave ratchet and I'll try and show you the inside of the wave ratchet there I don't know if you can see that so well but basically it's not your basic 12-point hex ratchet. Like, this is a fixed 12-point hex. It's basically two hexes overlapped by 50%, right? You get 12 points. This is six points with a really special profile on the inside. And they're super good at grabbing any hex that's been rounded over or otherwise butchered. They're butchered by corrosion, butchered by a thousand people attempting to undo them with nutfuckers, whatever, right? This wave ratchet, I was very sceptical when they sent it to me, but I've been using these for months now. And occasionally when you get a fastener that's just rounded over and beyond repair and you're thinking, I'm going to have to lug the welder all the way up here and weld a proper nut onto this fucked one, just get this out. They're absolutely brilliant. They, they actually made a jig. They gave me this jig, right? It's got these different nuts on it that are hexes that are all either good or rounded off, okay? And one of them is rounded over to the tune of 80%. This one over this end here is rounded over 80%. And the wave ratchet just grabs it. It, like, it grabs it and turns in the way that your ordinary hex just doesn't. It just has no hope in hell. And if you get your NF on this and you try and do that, yeah, you can get it to turn, but as soon as you lean on it, all you're going to do is round it over even more. The grip geometry of the inside of this ratchet, like the ratcheting mechanism itself is quite nice and it works well and it's got a, a nice lever and all those features that you'd expect from a quality tool, but the grip geometry is an absolute game changer with this wrench and it's a game changer in particular for farmers or people who work restoring anything old because the hexes on old stuff are likely to be corroded and damaged by a hundred thousand ham-fisted dickheads who worked on whatever previously and if you can grab an 80% rounded hex and just screw it out like that 
as opposed to all of the other interventions that are often necessary if you've got a badly damaged hex, then, you know, this would be the second set of spanners that I would buy as a priority. I'd always have a set like this first because you can hit them with a hammer and, hey, fantastic. But as a second set, if you work in those sorts of environments, likely to be pulling apart machines that are old and or damaged, corroded, whatever, these things are freaking brilliant and I can't recommend them to you highly enough. Anyway, if you've got more questions about this or you enjoyed the tool time chat at the weekend, I could do some more of this. Like, I'm really into this stuff, but I'm mindful that many people come here just to talk about cars and this is really not a chat about cars, but it's peripherally relevant if you're the kind of dude who gets out there and goes hands-on with your car at the weekend, which is why I'm doing this chat today. So... If you like more of this content, let me know in the comments below. And if you hated it, let me know, because, hey, I got thick skin. And if you really liked it, we can do some more of this stuff. Give me some suggestions, what you'd like to know about, and we'll deep dive into all that stuff. Because, you know, when I grew up, working on a car was the principal recreation in driveways right across the nation. And I know, you know, a lot of people... A lot of people don't have the same enthusiasm for that now but I think there's enough people who do to justify talking about this stuff if you tell me you want it so let me have it in the comments dude and I'll catch you on the next one